Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Hello and welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. This is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Each week we talk with a different creative Mississippian. We talk to artists, musicians, writers, photographers, as well as people who help uh, promote the arts in their community. And today we have some very special guests with us, uh, writers David Dennis Sr. and David Dennis Jr. They've got a brand new book out called The Movement Made Us. It's a collaborative book between father and son. And it, it tells the story of uh, David Dennis Sr.'s uh, time in the Civil Rights Movement, as well as reflections from David Jr. Before I want to start, I want to give you guys your bios before we, so people know that David Dennis Sr., of course, is a civil rights veteran. He worked in Louisiana and in Mississippi and worked on, was one of the main organizers of Mississippi Freedom Summer and the, and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And he's the executive director of the Southern Initiative Algebra Project. David Dennis Jr. He's a writer for The Undefeated, and his work has been featured in many, many publications, including The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Huffington Post, and you were the 2021 American Mosaic Journalism Prize winner. So welcome to you both. Thank you so much. This book, it seems like it's really come out of the gate really, really strong. Uh, praise from Mississippians Kiese Lehman, Eddie Glaw Jr., as well as Imani Perry and many others. What's, what's been the initial kind of reaction and, and what do you, feedback you guys have been getting? Uh, it's been it's been great, which has been, you know, something obviously you have a lot of anxiety over <laughs> uh, early in the process. But it's, it's been great. I think the best part has been now that um, it's been, you know, it's, it's a week out released last Tuesday or, you know, uh, May 10th. And so hearing from dad's peers, some of the veterans who've called and said that it's brought back memories or brought them to tears, like that's been the, the best part in terms of the, the reaction from folks. Yeah, Mr. Dennis, what have, what have you heard from your, your friends and colleagues? A lot of people have been waiting for this story, you know, because uh, uh, for a long time I didn't participate in interviews and things of that nature. Really uh, bringing this to life and doing what uh, David deserves all the credit for it. You know, I just told a story, and uh, most of that story that I was able to tell, he brought it back to life because I almost just pushed it back in the back of my head. So, so it should psychologically have been dealing with it. And so, and he's the only one who could have done this story. You know, There's no one else could have done it. So, so all of the credit goes to him. You know, and so I'm just very proud of him and what he's did with it. So this is a story. I think from what I've read, it's been long on your mind to be something that you wrote about. So talk about the journey from the initial, th- I'm going to write this book mm-hmm. to you know, kind of getting started with your dad. Yeah, I mean, I I, I had heard these stories. You know, sitting around the table, dad and his peers, and and just. They would talk shop and tell these really sort of interesting episodic stories from this movement time. And they were, you know, as a kid, not understanding all the implications of the stories. They sounded like adventures, right? I mean, they have all kinds of, you know, there's high-speed chases and there's bombs and, like, all kinds of stuff that just captured my imagination. So I was always saying, you know, one day I'm going to put in a book. And as we sort of get, I had a I plan in my head that I would, you know, write a couple books and we'd get this book done, but that's not sort of how life works. And we want to get these, these stories down. And, you know, there's also 
the way the, of the world at the time. You know, we, this was written a lot during the, or all of it pretty much during the Trump presidency, you know, Black Lives Matter and all the stuff. So it was important important to tell these stories at that right time. So we really sort of sat down, you know, in earnest to, to do this probably about 2018. And, um, you know, I think it was, dad didn't quite know what I had in mind or what the plan was in terms of the book. I just was asking questions and getting it, getting it down and then started writing. And, you know, this, it sort of became became a thing. Mr. Dennis, for you, what was important for you going into this project? What you thought it should be or what was, you know, what was your thoughts about that? Well, in the, in the very beginning, I was unsure. But one thing was was clear, though, is that it had to be about the people involved in the movement. So you read a lot about the some key people, you know, the, uh, the, the, the civil rights leaders, whether you have this. But what's forgotten out there is happens to be the thousands of people who really made it happen. So you talk about Freedom Summer, you know, where we talk about uh, key individuals and the names come up all the time. What we don't talk about are the thousands of people who house all those kids who came in. Neither do we talk about what happened to them after the kids left. So I'm quite sure that uh, some of them really suffered quite a bit as a result of that, both economically and physically, we don't know. And so what I call the real forgotten heroes in the movement, and we need to figure out how to give some attention to them, because I wonder sometimes what would it be like if a kid or even adult now understood that their parents or relatives had something to do with this movement. And young people could say on the streets and stuff like that, you could feel some pride in the fact is that my aunt, my uncle, you know, my grandfather, my grandmother, whatever, did this and that in the movement. So those stories become important to me in terms of getting other people to recognize, you know, who were important in the movement from their communities, please, that we have here. So that was really important. So I've been, uh, a lot of times when I did talk, uh, speak, I always talk about those people, you know, and so that it becomes important. And a part of my psyche is is that I have sleepless nights now, always did is, from the fact that I was worried about and wondering what happened. So, you know, there is a story that goes back and forth. I can't get out of my head is, you know, two old people going up to register the vote, and they drove up and came up in a wagon and a, and a mule, you know, in Canton, Mississippi. And so we were having those voter education, voter registration drives on Friday. And they came in, they tried to register voters, they walked right through the sheriff, Billy Noble, and them heads high, came back down, and got back in that buggy, and they went across. And they had to be in the 70s or so, you know. And so I can't get that out of my head. And they just disappeared as they moved down the street with that buggy. I mean, I said, what happened to them? So the real heroes, I mean, to, it was revolutionary and radical for someone to have an NAACP card. It was radical for people to go down and try to register the voters because, you know, what would happen to them? We came and we left, you know, but they stayed. And, you know, kind of uncovering those, those hidden stories, you had one of your, even though you were so active, you had one of your own that you found out later about your mother's activities, right? Right, with yes. her, with her, With her colleagues, yeah. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't until after she died. You know, I mean, just going through the trunk and, you know, looking at stuff is. And I'd always heard about it, uh, these ladies, uh, these beauticians in the Shreveport. But I didn't know my mom was part of that, you know. So, uh, and so what, I mean, then finding out about it that way is, and then right after that is I was at a conference in Atlanta, you know. And so this young lady, not she wasn't a young lady, she was about my age. And she came up to me and said, Dave, uh, they call you Sonny, didn't they? I said, yeah. 
she said she was from around Monroe, Louisiana, and said, "Well, I knew your, I met your mother. You know, your mother used to come down with these ladies from Shreveport, beauticians, and work with my mama to get people registered to vote. You know, like I didn't know anything about wow. that." He says, "You know." You know, they, all three unpacked, you know, they, they had the weapons, but I knew my mom, so I was packed a gun, you know. Uh, but I didn't know that was going on at that time. And I think uh, some of the people involved with that is it was good to be able to, the, the ladies themselves, uh, uh, Bernice and them, she just died not too long ago, but uh, David didn't get a chance to meet them, but he did get to meet one of the heroes, Dr. Seal Simpkins, you know. So part of what this is all about is, is saying that we get this, um, we recognize the saying that young people, snake core people, you know, it's almost like we started the movement, you know. Yeah. No, that's not true. The movement's already here. You know, people are doing this up for long, and they set the pathway for us and opened the doors and allowed us, be, for us to be able to do what we did. Had to, a lot to do with the work that they had done before that. I mean, Mac Evans was doing this, you know, in the 50s, you know what I mean, so which is really one of my heroes. So what this book does, what Davy has done in a very beautiful way, is bring all that to life and putting attention on the fact is, you know, and so when you say the movement made us, you know, we didn't make the movement, you know, and this, so it's also that says that it's not a journey of a, of a freedom a rider, you know, it's a, you know, uh, it talks about a uh, freedom ride. It's a very significant in terms of what those meanings are, put them together. Yeah, I, re- I really love that sentiment, the, mm-hmm wrote it down. The movement didn't come to Mississippi. Mississippi was the movement. Yeah. David, what? so once you decided and started getting down, what was kind of your process? And I know it kind of got, went, kind of went sideways with the, with the pandemic starting. Yeah. So it was uh, a lot of, well, first I just wanted to get dad stories. I, I wanted to, um, this, this book sort of, to me, mimics like a war book. And so uh, I thought about dad and folks in the trenches who may not necessarily you know, who are doing things, going on missions, and may not necessarily know all of the national implications of that or, or why you're doing something, right? And so I just interviewed Dad straight from, based off the memories of the stories we had and put things together, and I had all of that sort of framework. Then I went back and did the research and filled in holes and th- did those sort of things and brought that back to him and tried to clean up, sort of figure out what was missing in his memory or try to reorganize the things. And then I would write the stories based on what we had and I would show him what I wrote and I would sometimes if there were things that only he knew or if there was a conversa- conversation with one or two people or he was in a room and it's like what's the color of the table or what does it look like I would just sort of write it and it would jog his memory and he would correct it and we go back and forth until we got to where some sort of as close to what the memory was as, as possible you know understanding that you know memory is, imper- is imperfect and there are reasons that there are that for that especially in in these traumatic situations and you know there was a plan for there to be a lot of travel elements to the book we were going to go to a lot of the places that that were featured in the book we went to you know we went to new orleans and shreveport early early in the process but we wanted to go back once i had a better understanding of the stuff that happened and we came to jackson what a week before (laughs) the world shut down and you know dad was actually on his way to uh, mardi gras and luckily did not go that that next weekend and so we um and that's you know we didn't couldn't do any travel so it was a lot of just zoom back and forth and you know me trying to find the information and give it to him and him going back and forth and us trying to put the pieces of this this decades old memories together for for the book and then also you know an important 
element within the book is kind of your own reflections that are in kind of forms of letters to your father, or to your to your children. When did that part kind of germinate and 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 enter into the process? The very very end. Like I I knew I had been you know coaxed to sort of put my voice in the book, which I knew it was going to be in there somewhere, but I was real hesitant to to do it and couldn't figure it out. And I wrote a lot of really bad chapters that just couldn't, I just couldn't, couldn't get it together. And so at the very, very end, I mean, I mean, my manuscript was in and I'd had these sort of chapters that still were not that good. And my editor was like, we got to, we need to work on it. I was like, well, let me try letters. Cause that way, you know, one of the problems is that this, it was so personal that I felt like bringing, like talking to other people and bringing them into the conversation felt, it sort of distracted me from what I was trying to do. And so I just wanted to talk directly to dad and to the kids. And that sort of happened at the very, very end. Um, and, you know, mo- for the most part, especially, especially one of the kids, like the, I wasn't planning on writing anything to the children. And that just sort of happened spontaneously. And I just said, hey, I tried it and I did. And it just ended up almost being first draft is what ended up in, in the book. So um, just writing from the heart. And, you know, dad read them and we, we talked about it and, you know, had heart to hearts. And, and, you know, and that's how the, those those ended up in the book. So do you see, Mr. D- I mean, this is primarily kind of a, a conversation between the two of you, but then it extends out to your to your grandchildren. And, and I think you mentioned in the last letter that, that you started kind of talking to them directly about your about your experiences. Is that right? Right. What we started was, was the, during the pandemic, uh, we had started doing a family kind of thing is with the kids and others on Sunday. So we spent, spent about a couple of hours on a Sunday just talking, you know, because we couldn't get together, you know. So, um, and then uh, the kids wanted, <laughs> the grandchildren wanted to talk. So we set up a separate time just for them on a Saturday, you know, and they started talking and sharing this information is and stuff. And so, and I felt that that was really another way of coming closer, you know, in a sense with the whole family pieces. So one of the things the book is about uh, is family, you know, in a different way is. And so uh, Dave has always been this kid who, uh, Really stressed family. I mean, it's been you know, something very close to him and important to him. And so he had brought this to the table in his own way, uh, not just by verbally talking about it, but by his actions. You know, so he, you know, one of the things that I always wish, and I say it over and over again, is that, and I've told him that, that I wish I could have been, been a father to him that he is to his children. You know, but, so that was very important in what this book is about because what dealing with our history as black people is. One of our strengths has always been, you know, the, the family structure, which is this extended family piece. That's what made the movement po- uh, possible. That's what made us possible, you know, in terms of what we did and how we grew up and not in protection of each other. You know, when I was raised, I was actually, I came from a single-parent home. I was, I was born on a plantation. The first nine years, that's where I lived. And so the first thing was is that what we did, but, but we had a family structure is that every, we were actually, the children were actually the children of the community, you know. And so, you know, everybody took care of the children. There's like the responsibility. Very strange setup, um, but it was very, very real. So coming into it is, is that I began to realize is that what the movement was all about was that what made it so strong was that family structure, you know. And, and um the Moynihan report, you know, sort of blamed black people for the problems and, and made it seem as if there was no real strong family structure in a sense. Of, but actually there was. And so that one of the things that the this brings out there 
you really have to read between the lines to some extent, but really what the emphasis is, to me, a lot is family in the book itself. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guests today are David Dennis Sr. and David Dennis Jr. We're talking about their new book, collaborative book, The Movement Made Us, talking about the the years, Dennis Sr.'s uh, time in the civil rights movement and reflections from David Jr. Let's jump into the story a little bit. I, I, the one thought that, that was really interesting early on is kind of like, you know, this was not something that you, you know, going into the movement was not the thing, you know, you didn't go to college or decide I'm going to, you know, it wasn't like a long-term goal of yours. It was something that kind of, you you found your way to it in, in kind of a, you know, just a, being a young person in New Orleans and being a college student. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, being in the civil rights movement, I, I was raised in a way uh, about being proud and stuff was one way, but at the same time is, is that also how to be very careful in terms of how you interact with white people. And so uh, I remember when um, a lot of people asked me, how did you feel when, when you f- uh, found out about Emmett Till you know, was murdered? And my response always is, I was scared to death. You know? And so the black men in the neighborhood took us into the church and talked to us about how to survive. You know, I mean, it was, you know, so really in terms of the civil rights movement pieces, I had my way of dealing with that was, you know, you get out, make some money, and, uh, you know, take care of the family. Because I was one of the first people in my, my family to graduate from high school. So that was a biggie, you know. And so things just started to happen. I mean, by fate, by accident, you know, by chance, that pulled me into the movement. So I would like to say, well, I, I didn't really go to it. I think it came to me, in a sense. And, um uh, and so when I went to New Orleans, uh, getting into it, it was my first uh, meeting with the Civil Rights Organization, which is the Congress of Racial Equality. It had to do with the fact is that I was on campus walking in my freshman year and walking on the campuses, and there was a crowd of people around Flagpole University. And uh, there was this young lady was talking, you know, so I looked at her and I said, well, I don't have anything to do with this, but then I stopped and turned around because she's a very attractive woman. So I went to really talk to her, uh, uh, wait till she finished t- uh, speaking, and went to talk to her, t- t- trying to get a date with her. That's what it was. So her date was, she tried to talk me into going to a meeting, a core meeting. So that was my first introduction to be. But I wasn't interested in getting involved with the movement as such as, you know. And I kept going to these meetings, trying to get this date with her. <laughs> so that was my driving force. And that is. So everything after that is was really uh, part of my uh, first arrest was by accident, the chance, you know. Getting into the Freedom Ride, joining the Freedom Ride was sort of by chance, the accident, in the senses. But it was during that period that uh, 
uh, of the Freedom Rod is when I really got what you might call religion, in the sense is in terms of movements, and that was at a meeting uh, at, the, at uh, uh, Dr. Harris's house in Montgomery. And so this is at the time the buses had been burned in Anderson, Alabama, and uh, people beaten up in Birmingham and Montgomery, you know. And so they were having this rally meeting in, in Montgomery to determine whether to decide whether or not the garage should continue that. So that was a group out of Nashville led by Diane Nash, and John Lewis and them was pushing for the movement to continue, for the drives to continue. And there was this group, another group of people in New Orleans led by Aretha Castle, who was the sister of the young lady that I was trying to get a date with, you know, how, how crazy that was. And so uh, they decided on both sides is that they would converge on Montgomery, Alabama, and move the rides, the rides to continue. So New Orleans sent a delegation. I got on the uh, part of that delegation after being challenged by Doris. And, and so I ended up in, um, in between Doris and Johnny Walker Red, and then went to, ended up at um, Montgomery, Alabama. So I was really, you know, like torn. And uh, why am I here? You know, should I go to get, get back to school? My mama doesn't know where I am, you know, and I just got out of jail. She didn't know I'd been in jail, you know. And so there's a mob outside of this house and everything else, and I'm like, I'm, why am I here? So in that meeting was some of the people, icons of the civil rights movement that I've been reading about, Martin Luther King, Y.T. Walker, James Bevel, uh, John Lewis. They're all there in this group making that decision. So the young people were saying, continue to ride, you know. And then the, uh, the elders were saying, you should take a march to him and slow down because somebody's going to get killed, you know. And then there's a debate whether or not Dr. King should be on the ride and what we have. It's back and forth. And I'm there saying is, let the uh, old people <laughs> win so I can get out of here, you know. And so all of a sudden is out of the clear blue, and I've been asking people, no one can tell me who said this. And they said, you know, all of a sudden I just heard this voice saying to me, there's not enough space in this room for both God and fear. And I don't know what happened. It just like, boom. All of a sudden, my hand was up. I'm on the first bus. I'm going to go this. But since that time is, there was not this thing that kept me from, I was in. Let's put it that way. Is, And there was always a struggle with me throughout the movement and everything else between uh, uh, being afraid and fear. You know, and I've always had to battle around how do you conquer your fears. And so... That became like the, the the challenge, you know, to me is, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, fearing God. And so that was my easy way to get out of that, you know, be able to face it. You know, so there was always this battle, you know, but I had to prove to myself. Um, and there were certain things I did that were very crazy to prove that I was not, I might be afraid, but I didn't have fear. You're listening to the Arts Hour, and our guests today are David Dennis Sr. and Jr., and we're talking about their new book, The Movement Made Us. Another kind of theme that comes through, uh, David, that I saw, and especially in the New Orleans story, is the kind of centrality of women in the movement. And I thought the, you know, being in Mississippi, you just read so much about Mississippi. So one, it was great to read about the New Orleans movement and its vitality, but also how women were just... And, and it kind of comes throughout all these different spots and so uh, uh, through his time. So talk about that a little. Yeah, I, I went into this book very concerned about that. Like it's a story of my dad and I and, you know, two men in our relationship and things like that. And I, and I wanted to make sure that I, there was um, enough spotlight on the women of the movement. So I wanted to be intentional about it. And what I learned 
is that it was very easy <laughs> to include the women in the movie because they were everywhere. You know, the first person we see in the book um, after the prologue is Doris Castle, as Dad mentioned. And, you know, she was not just out there to look pretty and to do that. Like, she was recruiting people to the movement. And if guys happen to, be, you know, want to go out on a date with her, that you come and go to these meetings. And, and these women were central to all the stories in the movement from Doris at the at the beginning of the of the book all the way to, you know, Anne Devine and Victoria Gray and Fannie Lou Hamer at the end of the book. Like, there are women at every part of this, this book. And to, you know, if I were to not include them, I wouldn't be telling the full story. Like, I would actually be erasing them from the story. So this was not... I actually didn't have to think about including them because you just couldn't help it, you know? Right. So this wasn't a act of, you know, diversity or anything like that. It was just telling the real story. And the real story is that the engine of the civil rights movement was black women. And they were, in, in every chapter, there is a black woman who was moving things forward. And, um, you know, that's just that's just the, tr- the truth. M- Mr. Dennis, getting to kind of your talking about working with local people, I, the one um, section that I thought was really interesting, I mean, lots of it, but uh, you go back to your hometown in Shreveport and uh, you're going to start organizing and your mother tells you to go to your go get your teeth cleaned at your dentist and you were kind of like why do you and then something gets revealed you know through that 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 really kind of teaches you a lesson that i was hoping you could talk about yeah well there was this guy i mean man uh, dr simpkins who was a dentist he was my dentist there and was, uh, who was a, a icon in northern louisiana he, uh, he was unbelievable well i heard about him and stuff like that but i wasn't you know into it and so her connection there was, and that should have given me something to understand about her involvement, you know, because she knew this, you know. So she, but teeth clean was actually, uh, I'm, I'm, because the they had to been talking about this, you know. I said, okay, I'll go there. And when I get there, and he looks at me, he says, he called me Sonny, Sonny, you know. He said, you know, I've been waiting for you, like, you know. So you know, so all of a sudden, it's, 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 he is talk to me, takes me in the back, you know, and he tells, shows me all this stuff is. He got a, a little printing thing, you know, it was a zip copy thing. He talks to me about, you know, the importance of uh, communication, you know, with people, you know, how we do this. Is, and that's one of the most powerful things you have in, in the movement uh, was, you know, the, uh, the word, uh, the, the, the power of the word, you know, in the sense of the pen. And so, I mean, that's not the start. So he began to introduce, open the door to me is about going, doing things is and working in Shreveport and uh, and in the, the movement to introduce me to the right people and everything else is. But she knew that. So going to get my teeth clean was actually to get me introduced to him, the other side of him, you know, not just the dentist, but the other part of him pieces. And I was very, it was very good to that. Uh, that story, you know, and uh, one, uh, just before the pandemic, we went to Shreveport, and David had a chance to meet him, and they spent a lot of time. We had tons of material in the books, so he's able to talk about some of the same things I talked about. He was he's repeating that, you know. So, you know, to Davey and uh, and how we got started in the movement, you know, and all this. So he remembers all this stuff. And he was ninety something, ninety five years old. Wow, his memory was just unbelievable. He was like, you know, you could. You know, he talked about I was a little young fool. At one time, I almost fell into a trap. Is some uh, white lady came through Shreveport, called, and said she had five thousand dollars for me, and but I need to come and get it at a hotel, which I should have known better. And that is because it's a white hotel. 
And so I, at the last minute, I decided to call Doc. I said, Doc, I just got this call. And he said, you know, he's like, boy, don't you go over there, you know. If she's got $5,000, I'll tell her to bring it over to my office. <laughs> you, know, so, you know, and so sure enough is she didn't show. And then about a few weeks later, he calls me up and said, okay, well, let me show you what happens here. There was some guy who was head of the NAACP who, who did go to get the money. And he was, uh, she yelled raped and he was put in jail, you know, arrested and everything else. And he said, you see, you know, he, but he was really, he was, he was just such a fantastic. And oh, by the way, what really was interesting about this is how things, the circle. So Bob Moses found his story is, is that his uh, mentor was Ella Baker. And so she thought he's very green because he had not been in the South when he, in 1960s, no further than Atlanta. So you decided to give him a list of people to go around the South to talk to Amazon Moore, C.C. Bryan, and other people like that here, and, he, and a couple of people in, in Louisiana. So Bob was, and I would talk a few years ago, and I said, Bob, you always talk about, Ella Baker gave you some names of people to talk to in, in Louisiana. Who was it in Louisiana? He said, oh, he said, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a dentist. I said, wouldn't it be Dr. C.O. Sim? He said, that's him, you know, that time. So in 1960, you know, in 61, around the time I was, you know, getting my feet wet, Bob Moses traveled, went through Shreveport to visit Dr. Simpkins, right? So I asked, when we met, I asked Dr. Simpkins about this, he said, oh, yeah, I remember Bob Moses. He did come by, you know, to talk about it, you know, so it's really... That was very interesting to uh, see how the how this whole movement thing was so close, and at the same time, so what a small it. network it really was, yeah, exactly especially right. early on like that. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that and you reflect about this, David, is just just how young your father was. I just it's kind of unbelievable. You going from a, him going from a college student to being really so much responsibility and so talk about your own kind of reflections about that. All of this happening to him really probably before he turned 25 I guess right yeah yeah I mean the whole all the book is before as he's 23 by the end of the, the book um, essentially and so you know like when you are a kid and you hear your parents stories you always envision like your parents like the, no matter what the story is you envision this old person who does even if they're talking about when they're children you know you, you think about your parents and so that's sort of had a grown up I'd always thought about you know that's dad dad did this dad did that and then when we were you know, going back over the stories, I was like, wow, this dude is, he was 20, you know, 21. Like, this is a child. And at the time, I was teaching at Morehouse, and I was, like, looking at my students. And I was like, man, y'all, like, <laughs> it would be, <laughs> I couldn't imagine y'all leaving. You You know, it. like, yeah. you, like, I, like the, the fate of the country in your hands, like, doing this stuff is, was baffling to me. I'm trying to grade papers to get y'all to turn in assignments on time and stuff. Yeah. And um, just thinking about all that responsibility on these kids. You know, Bob Moses was the the old guy in the movement and he was like 26 or something like that at the time, you know? And, and, and that's one thing I wanted to bring forward in the book is that these were kids, they were doing like, you know, childish things, which, which kids do, you know, like you were pulling pranks on each other and you're trying to survive and trying to hang out and go on dates in the middle of this like really tumultuous time. And I think that adds to the, to the humanity and the, the fact that these were real people is that they were young folks out there just, just trying to get by, like not, you know, wanting to have careers, you know, like nobody, you know, they weren't like kids saying, you know, I want to go to jail and get hosed and get beaten when they're 20. Like the, nobody wants that. They wanted to go and live their normal lives, but this, this stuff sort of happened and they had, they found a different path. And just the amount of responsibility that was, I, I think about that, the scene of when you were in Baton Rouge and 
trying to take care of, oh, I got to take care of these college students. Mm -hmm. Well, you were really only a year or two older than them, but you already had that kind of like elder responsibility kind of on you, which was pretty amazing. Yeah, you don't think about it like that in the sense that until doing this book, I had not put it in. I think it always in my head as if I was older, you know, until we talk talk about this book. David keeps talking, but you were only, and I'm like, that's true. (laughs) You know, the kind of piece of but I want to say before I forget, because being getting an old man now, as I do forget, I just want to say one thing about this Davies thing about women in the movement and stuff is, and I think that a lot of this has to do with his relationship that has to do it, and, and like although this is about father-son pieces, you know, very prevalent in this also was his mother, you know, because there's been a, a very powerful woman, you know, pieces with a pope, you know, to since both of us, you know, and with him especially and stuff. So I just want to recognize that piece as, piece of, uh, as part of this as we move through this conversation. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Back for this last segment of the Arts Hour today. Our guests today are David Dennis Sr. and Jr., and we're talking about their new collaborative book, The Movement Made Us, that's just come out. For people who, historians of Mississippi, since we're, we're talking to a Mississippi audience, the one little scene that really jumped out that was seemed to come out of nowhere was your audience with the Governor Ross Barnett, and just seemed to come out of nowhere. And what brought that on, and how do we, I think you kind of mentioned that other people had been brought in by him, but this is the famous segregationist governor of, of Mississippi in the early 1960s. Yeah, there was a, a field secretary from Corps who was here, uh, uh, preceded my beat coming in in uh, 1962 is when I came in, April of 1962. His name was Tom Gaither. And so Tom Gaither says, uh, uh, one thing might happen here is uh, uh, the governor, Ross Barnett, uh, has a habit of actually t- wanting to talk to some of the civil rights people, you know. And he's talked to me and whatever have is. So he, don't be surprised if he made contact with you, know. Uh, and so I said, okay, but I was surprised when <laughs> he did that. So I'm in, we had just opened up the office on, on Lynch Street and um, sharing an office with Snick and Core. And uh, the state troopers came in. And Dave Dennis says, we'd like for you to come with us. I said, oh, heck, I had no idea what they were talking about. I said, no, what I'm, I said, I need to make a phone call, <laughs> you know, so they could think about it, you know. No. So he ended up taking me to the governor's office, house, and office there is, and there he was, you know. And he just wanted to talk, wanted to meet, you know. And his one thing was, why are you here, you know. And um, 
kind of thing is. So it became a very interesting conversation about race and stuff is, you know, you need to separate the races, you don't need to be, you know, our Negroes are happy here, you know, it kind of stuff has gone through this. Then that one incident came in my mind was, was the lady, uh, maid came in, you know, bringing the coffee, tea, you know, and stuff is. And she comes in and does that, and so, um, and she asked, yeah, so like that. And so then it hits me, the fact is that, you know, he had been talking about prior to that about separation of races, you know, you'd be eating your own places, you know, like this, you know, you'll be, you know, in um, public places. So I raised a question about him about, you know, here he is, you know, you don't want to sit down and eat with me or whatever it is, but you use a black person to fix your food, you know, and the tea, you know, and whatever you have is, and also in terms of um, they nurse your children, you know, whatever you have is, but you don't want them to go to school, whatever you have is. And so he couldn't have an answer to that, you know. That was like really like as if he had not thought about it in a sense. So he's a very puzzling guy in a sense that because there were moments in that conversation I thought that he was really listening, seriously, but he would fall back into this whole racism thing. Is and then remind me of the fact is that that's what happened a lot. I mean, when I, when I lived on the on the plantation farm, you know, there was this relationship. It was, it was still. Uh, slave, white master kind of thing is, but then this thing would break, you know, the, the between us of people, the two human beings. And my grandfather, uh, when I was very young, is he he had this thing about family too. You know, he was like uh, he he, um, he my grandmother had had relationships, so he didn't call her. Only when he was angry would he call her by her name. He called her friend. You know, that was his thing, friend, friend. And so there's one day he was working. For this white guy and uh, uh, Hank was in, a, in uh, his farm, and so they came back in, the, in, the, in front of the house in, in uh, Shreveport, and around the ditch there is, and they got into an argument, and so Hank cursed. You know, my grandmother was standing there, me there, there, and my dad just, my grandpa just knocked him down right in the ditch. You know, pow! You don't curse in front of my wife and my child, my, my grandson. So my grandmother just went crazy. You know, she thought he was, oh, this is it. You know, he's gone to jail, whatever. So I make a long story short, is got him up, and then they left. And my grandmother just was sure that he wasn't going to come back. You know, they do that part. David does a beautiful job in the book about it. And then later on, they come back. You know, my grandmother just thought she just would never see him alive again. And she had me believe in that now because I'm scared too. You know, but so they come back is and they come back is come out and they fall out of the truck right into the ditch and they laugh and stuff like that is it's my grandfather put his little gin and cure you know you know and so when you when they they and they became friends i mean so all of a sudden is is like when they got ready to leave you know uh, hank who i always called dave you know my grandfather that you know and uh, whatever and he would call him mr hank it was I, I, okay okay take care mr hank Okay, Mr. Dave, and I'm like, what? You know, you know, as a little kid, see, and that was a respect thing. After that, they were just, you know, his face is all swollen up. <laughs> you know? But the, uh, it's it's amazing. Then my my aunt showed me a picture. Uh, I've been trying to find the picture, can't find it now. But uh, my grandfather on the on the bank of the thing is with a fishing pole with this white guy, you know, and she says that you know that's you know who that is. I say who the white guy. It was Earl K. Long. He said, my, she says, my grandfather and Earl K. Long were good friends, you know, which I didn't know anything about. But, I mean, they had this strange relationship with people. 
at this time is, but you don't, couldn't cross the line is in terms that I'm equal to you, you know. One of the really great parts of the book is kind of the, you know, talking about intimate relationships is that is bringing out the personality of all of these um, iconic people. You know, Megar Evers here in Mississippi, he's kind of like this bronze statue that we all go look at. But that, but the personality of Megar Evers, the personality of, of Schwerner and Cheney come through. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, trying to bring that part out in uh, when you were writing. Yeah. Uh, before we do that, I do want to talk about the Ross Barnett. Oh yeah. Also, because um, you know, I'm 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 doing this all while I'm in Mississippi, and this is very important to me. That my my dad and I used to hang out at the reservoir a lot. You know, some of the scenes in the book happened in, in the reservoir, and as a kid, we just called it. I'm just called it the reservoir, right? And so I didn't realize till later that this is the Ross Barnett Reservoir, and that this was named. You know, we talk about Confederate monuments and what they meant in terms of people owned slaves and things like that, but there are monuments here named after people who were violent oppressive to people who are alive right now and so one thing that i hope that people do when they read this book is realize they need to change the name of that reservoir uh i know there's been discussion about that before but i think it's it's really time that 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 ross barnett be stricken from everything it, namely that place where people go and hang out and have fun and spend time with their families um so i just wanted to say that um so yeah the, this thing this the real realness of these folks right is was e- extremely important um i mean dad knows these people you know i think a lot of the times when we think about people who have been especially who've been killed who've been assassinated lost uh we just think about them as people who've been killed or erased and things like that not the fact that they were actual full human beings who had lives and had futures that they were trying to live you know um you know mega evers had children and he wanted to be around with them and James Cheney had just you know had a had a child a baby that he was trying to go see and that these folks had dreams and, and aspirations things they wanted and that's what was taken away and I and, you know and I think it's important that we see them as people and dad is has a very unique perspective and that he's crossed paths with so many people and was friends with so many of them that it would sort of be an injustice not to show these moments of them driving around in Mississippi or having, you know, sweet tea on Ferris Street and just, you know, talking and having conversations because then you also have an understanding of what was, who they were and also what was taken when their lives were taken also. You're listening to the Arts Hour and our guests today are David Dennis Sr. and Jr. And we're talking about their new book, The Movement Made Us. Talking about a lot of the under, un, uh, under-recognized people and one who kind of that is meant that is brought up in in the book that you talk about who who kind of doesn't fit he kind of has his own mold is is co chin in 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 madison county who you know he kind of has his own category and uh i I was hoping you could just talk a little bit about him kind of bringing up these people that maybe aren't in the in the in the first line of 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 uh you know people memored for the movement yeah well Silva uh, Chen was uh, I can't say one of a kind he was a kind there was a certain group of people and uh, throughout the South black men you know who really did not take much stuff off of white people you know uh, there was like the Turnbulls you know Seal Chen and others and they most of them were, were landowners you know came independent so Seal's life was uh, the first time I met him uh, was that the uh, we had some workers over in Canton, uh, George Raymond and, and Matteo uh, Flukes Suarez, and so they came in one day and and Jackson talked to me about they had this issue about 
this black guy was uh, at the rallies and stuff was uh, sit out front with his guns, you know, and and, um, and they had gone to talk to him about it, but he just wouldn't move. He just just you know look at him like you know. So the woman goes, I said, sure, I'll go talk to him. So I go over there, and sure enough, there he was, you know. So I talked to him about. So he just looks at me. And, I told him I was nonviolent, blah, 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 blah. He just looked at me and said, well, look, you, this is my town, my people, you know, and uh, if you're going to work over here, you know, I'm going to, wherever you, they, they are, that's where I'm going to be. I'm going to protect them. Nobody's going to come mess with them. So if you're going to work over here, you know, those are my rules, you know, like sense. And so uh, I'm like, <laughs> I just looked at him. You know, I said, yes, sir. <laughs> that was it. So we had to change our strategies in the sense of how to work with local people if they don't want to put their guns in. We decide we work with the people, you know, and that's it. So there were other people like that is. In the South, uh, you found them. I mean, in Louisiana, there was the deacons for defense, you know. I mean, they did not deal with uh, uh, being aggressive or anything like that, but they protected the church, protected the community people. And you had these groups is, uh, in uh, in Mississippi also. And C.O. Chen, he wore his gun right open, but the, what it came back to, though, that he and the sheriff at that time, Billy Noble, they grew up together. You know, they used to fight, and they used to fight against each other, fight but fight other kids, you know. And so Billy, when C.O. C.O. was a landowner, he had a couple hundred acres of land, and C.O. had a nightclub, you know, so he's doing bootleg liquor, you know, and whatever you have is. Uh, and, but that was how sheriffs made a lot of money then. You know, because they would get paid off by that piece. So they had a relationship. The interesting thing about SEAL was, was when the movement went to, uh, when the civil rights workers began to move into Canton and work, SEAL made a decision. It was like, you know, and that was, I'm with these people, you know, I'm going to protect them. And that's what he did. So he and Billy Noble went to the arts each other because of that, you know, pieces. And, but he wasn't afraid of Billy Noble, and they just, you know, they had a, a certain amount of respect that we were talking about earlier, which is very strange, like a piece between the two of them, the relationship, uh, up until his death. And so when CO in that community, can community, is when CO died, he had to escort uh, the police department and the sheriff's department in front of his hearse when they got, you know, for him to be buried and stuff is. So he had, and that, that community and in, uh, in can at that time has just totally respected him and his son. Now, CO did go to jail on the manslaughter charges because they came and shot up his, the clan shot up his house. He chased them down into a white nightclub and then called them out, you know, and stuff like that. And there was a shootout, and he shot two of them, you know what I mean? You, know, you just don't mess with, <laughs> didn't mess with CO Chin. I mean, yeah. But in, they, in the South, a place like that, they, the way they dealt with people like a CO Chin, before they would say that that was a brave black man, well, as they call him a crazy nigga. See, that's what they were called. And they did that. And I remember that uh, there had been some incidents around Shreveport. And even when I was on the plant, we were living on the plantation, I would hear the stories, you know. And that's what they were called, even then, is if they made the stand up to against the, uh, the white population, you know, for rights, whatever, their own rights of manhood, they were considered to be crazy, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah and, I, and we, um, I'd first heard about C.O. Chin. We went to his funeral. What was it, 1999, 2000, something, something like, like that? that yeah. And I've been excited. I mean, and we rode to 
Canton and rode back, and Dad told me stories about Seal Chin the whole. And I wanted, I just was dying to write about him. Like he's just like a super. He just yeah. seems like this like he needs real, his own movie action yeah, movie, yeah, right? He does. Like he's yeah. like this this larger than life like superhero gunslinger type of dude that is just like you don't that you definitely do not hear a lot about um, in the movement. You know, especially that you it's all this nonviolent talking about stuff like people like Seal Chin are as integral to the movement as everybody else. But he just was like the coolest dude. <laughs> it seemed yeah. like to me. So yeah, absolutely. Well, I know you guys got a lot more stops today on your trip but we uh, uh, promoting this book. But again, David Dennis Sr., David Dennis Jr., The Movement Made Us is the new book. Please go check it out. Thank you so much for coming today. We really appreciate Thank it. You Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform.